Well, I was talking with a friend recently who reminded me, uh, who made an important observation. And this is what he said. It seems to me that we too much ignore the Holy Spirit. Now let me just give you some background on the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he does. The Holy Spirit convinces us that we are sinners who are in need of the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Also, uh, the Holy Spirit brings our dead spirits to life. You can read about that in Ephesians 2. And delivers us from the following of the powerful spirit that is work at work into disobedience, a metaphorical term for Satan or the devil. Also, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live a life that pleases God and the Holy Spirit enables us to do the obedience of faith. And there's some 44 scriptures in, in this week's sermon, and you can look them all up if you have the outline. Now, the Holy Spirit also drives the big idea of today's passage, namely those who are under God's covenant of grace in Jesus are serving by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then boasting in Christ, having moved beyond trusting in their own efforts. That's the biggest flaw of humanity. We think we can do things on our own. I'm going to throw this in. My mother told me ever since the time I was three, I would go around saying, all by myself, all by myself. Well, you know, that's not a godly attitude, but it's typical of the terrible threes. Okay, so um, let's now dig into this beginning of the rest of the exhortations that Paul wrote to the brothers he loved in the church he planted in Philippi. So there's, there's two halves to today's passage. It breaks into perfect halves. The first is kind of positive, and the second is kind of negative. But he starts saying, further you all, rejoice in the Lord and look out for those trusting in circumcision because we, by God's Spirit, are serving and boasting in Christ Jesus. So in the first verse he says, further or in addition, brothers, Rejoice in the Lord in writing these same things to you. It's for your safety. Now, literally what he's saying is, my brothers, this is the rest. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I've looked through all kinds of translations, and if any of you have a translation in front of you that doesn't say, finally, raise your hands. I had to go to Young's literal translation. And again, I know this is kind of nitpicking, but this word is used over 50 times in the New Testament. And now I realize I preached wrong all those years at the rescue mission when I preached this passage. 
because I used to say, oh, Paul's just like any other preacher. Halfway through the sermon, he says he's wrapping it up, and then he goes on for two more chapters. But no, what he's really saying is he's gotten to the end of a certain subject, and now he's saying there's much more I have to tell you. And I've given you uh, 10 passages where it means what it usually means, which is as to the rest, in addition to, otherwise, other than this. But what is really apparent here and in this whole letter is the affection that Paul has for this church, for these people. By calling them brothers, he's again showing how much he loves the people in this church in Philippi. And even as he's beginning a section that is heavy on exhortation and, and, and correction and pushing them to be their best, he's addressing them as brothers, which also means sisters, because remember, one of the first converts there was Lydia. Okay. And now his first command is rejoice in the Lord. Uh, again, there's been books written on in the Lord. That phrase occurs in Paul close to a hundred times. And we must understand this, people. All true joy is experienced only in the Lord, only in him. Only those who are in the Lord Jesus by the birth that is given by the Holy Spirit, have both abundant life and joy. Joy is not anything we can manufacture on our own. We must be in Christ and him in us. And then he says, to write the same to you all, it is indeed not troublesome or a burden to me, tiresome, but to you all it is safe. This is very important. At the founding of the church in Acts 16 and in his later visits, which aren't written about in Scripture, but like any good teacher, Paul made sure that they both knew what the Lord required of them and that they were doing it as well. This ongoing strengthening of disciples is a pattern of Paul. I was blown away in Acts 14 where Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey. They went out from Jerusalem and on the way back they stopped at every single church that had been planted and strengthened the disciples. This is the true heart of a missionary. And then he says, carefully look at the evil dogs of the, I'm going to say it right out, mutilation, because we are the circumcision who by the Spirit of God are serving and boasting, not trusting in the flesh. So he starts out in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for the concision. This is awesome rhetoric. What he's doing here is by repetition, he's driving a point home. 
We could save a lot of ink if we just said, look out for, and then listed all three. But he's really warning them, and he's using heavy, strong language. He's calling them dogs, and to the Israelites, dogs were unclean. He's calling them workers of evil. And then he's also saying these people are literally trying to mutilate you. Now, there's a word play here that the King James correctly brings out, and it was in Young's literal translation. Okay, there's a contrast between concision and circumcision, and the two words used in the original were that close together in sound and in meaning. But I had to get out a dictionary to find out what concision means. And what he's really saying is, these people want to mutilate your flesh and do that which is unnecessary. These Judaizing Christians are saying it's not enough to be in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. You must do something else or you're not right with God. And then he says, because we, we are the circumcision. And as I was following in my NIV, they get that emphatic we, where Paul repeats we. And I think this is awesome. Think about it. By strongly joining himself a Torah-keeping Jew with his non-Jewish believing brothers in Philippi, Paul is making an important point about how in the church, Jews and non-Jews can be united. In fact, no matter how different we may be or have been before we came to Christ, in Christ, we can be truly united in spite of all the differences. If our country, if our world ever needed to be in Christ, this is the time when we need this. Okay? And this is consistent with the outcome of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And this verse is the heart of the exhortation we had heard previously in chapter 2, when Paul said that they were to work out their salvation. And then he goes on and says, we by the Spirit of God are serving and boasting, again, in Christ Jesus. Now, I left out of the outline any comment on boasting. I, I will just say this. You can look at the end of 1 Corinthians 1. I had it in my prayer. God said, most of y'all have no reason to boast. You were nothing in the world. But now you can boast in the Lord Jesus Christ, quoting Jeremiah 9.24. So there's a contrast here. We boast in what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for ourselves. But it's very important, this word, serving. And, and if you have a, a, a different translation from Young's Literal, uh, sometimes they put worship in there, but that's not the best translation. Um, Paul used the noun form of this verb in Romans when he was urging the brothers there in Rome to offer their bodies as living sacrifices to God 
their spiritual form of service, and I put it on the back of your bulletin. Young, in his literal translation, said that's your intelligent service. Now, where the idea or aspect of worship comes in is this word was used in the uh, Old Testament under the Mosaic Covenant for the service of the Passover. And it was also used for the service of the priests in offering sacrificial burnt offerings and peace offerings. And this comes from Joshua after they were finally settled and in his farewell speech, he said, the priests will be serving as you offer up these offerings to God. But what's being made here is a very important point. True service, if we want to do true service to God, it is only in the Holy Spirit and by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by our own efforts or strength. And Paul drives this point home in the last phrase, having no confidence in the flesh. With this phrase, he now transitions as he's going to tell his story of how by his own efforts he was unable to obtain the righteousness of Christ that's gained through the faith of Christ. That's verse 9. I'm so looking forward to next week, and I hope I can explain so you can understand something the Holy Spirit helped me to discover in my second year at seminary. But following the flesh, our own efforts, does not bring about righteousness. And we've been singing about righteousness this morning. Second part, Paul says, I have more reason to trust in the flesh. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And according to zeal, I persecuted the church after I had become blameless according to the law namely the Torah. So in verse 4, he says, I am also having cause to put confidence in or to trust in my flesh indeed more than any other, although I'm having confidence in the flesh. Now, this is kind of a reverse testimony, and you can read about it in Galatians 1. He's reminding everyone now in Philippi how he was advancing beyond his peers, being more exceedingly jealous for the traditions of his fathers. But then God called him to preach the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ, the gospel that opposes the flesh. Again, following the flesh will never bring about righteousness. We can't do it of ourselves. And he says, if any other is thinking um, to be uh, trusting in his flesh, in what he's done for himself, he can forget about it. I'm way beyond him. I am so much more. So when confronting the church in Corinth about these super apostles, if you remember 2 Corinthians 11, Paul foolishly begins to boast about his past accomplishments in the flesh. An Israelite of Abraham. But he said this after 
He said, but now I'm fighting with divine weapons as I preach the gospel. And I'm only boasting in the Lord because following the flesh does not bring righteousness. And then he concludes our passage this morning saying, I am a blameless sevenfold Israelite being circumcised on the eighth day. And he rattles off seven things. Let's just consider these seven things. He says, on the eighth day circumcised. Remember the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 16, okay? The condition that God made with Abraham is that all of your male descendants must be circumcised on the eighth day. But Paul now knows, and again, from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah, from Scripture, from what we call the Old Testament, that what Yahweh also spoke of was the necessity of heart circumcision. In uh, Deuteronomy 10, there's the truth of heart circumcision. Your hearts have been circumcised. And then there's the promise that heart circumcision will come in the future for God's people, Deuteronomy 30. And then Jeremiah, who probably had the toughest job of any prophet, I sympathize with him. He gave this prophetic command to allow heart circumcision to be done by the Lord. And you can look them all up. And then he says, of the race of Israel. What he's saying is, I have the same genes in me as Israel. By birthright, I'm also under the Mosaic covenant given to Israel. He's under two covenants of the tribe of Benjamin. There's a couple of things we need to remember about Benjamin. Moses blessed all 12 tribes just before he was gathered to the Lord in the next to last chapter of Deuteronomy. And as he was talking about Benjamin, he said Benjamin was the beloved of Yahweh who would rest shielded in Yahweh. Saul of Tarsus had been claiming this promise all his life. And I must also say he says all of this in the present tense. Why? That was his previous life. Well, we must understand, people, that the past is always going to be part of who we are now. Even if by grace we've moved beyond it, it may give us sympathy, it may do a lot of things. So he says, this is really who I am. I'm not denying who I am, who I was. Then also the tribe of Benjamin, and, and I'm reading this now in my morning reading through the Bible. The first king of Israel was Saul of Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. Now Saul ended poorly, but Paul was given by his parents the very same name as this first king of Israel, uh, recognizing that truth. Fourthly, and in the middle, he says, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And this is a transition point for Paul. The first three were all about who he was by birth, his birthright, so to speak. This is what I was born into. But from here on, he will say, having all of these privileges of birth, this is how I served 
Yahweh. He said, according to the law, the Torah, I was a Pharisee. And we must understand that in the days that Jesus came to earth, the Pharisees were the evangelicals of the Jewish religion. These were the Bible believers. These were the ones who were not, uh, what do you call it, you know, uh, well, there really isn't a God, but we'll just pretend and do good works. No, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in miracles. They believed in prayer. He was a Pharisee. And in his testimony before the 70 elders of the Sanhedrin and also before Paul uh, Agrippa, Paul said, I am a Pharisee with the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And I lived according to the strictest sect. We didn't make light of the word of God. We tried to do everything that was written in it. But now, even after Paul saw a great number of Jews believe in the gospel that he preached with Barnabas at Iconium, some of these Jewish Christians are now demanding that non-Jews be circumcised. This triggered the Jerusalem Council. Now, even though they were judged to be wrong at that first council in Jerusalem, many of these were traveling hundreds of miles. Philippi was in Europe, leaving the Middle East for Europe to push their fleshly requirement of circumcision in addition to the basic gospel, which is all we need. Faithful obedience to Christ by the grace that the Holy Spirit gives. But what is Paul saying here? He says, I know where this false doctrine is coming from because I used to be there. I was there. And that's why he's using such strong, strong language, rhetoric, as he's trying to keep these believers in Philippi safe, going back to his opening sentence. But then he goes on to say, according to zeal, I was persecuting the church, his former zeal. Remember, he was approving of the stoning of Stephen. And while Philip was making disciples in Samaria, another one of the deacons chosen with Stephen and baptized the eunuch from Ethiopia, we're told Saul was still breathing out threats and murders against the Lord's disciples and went so far as to get permission to bind any who were following the way, way over in Damascus, Syria, and bring them down to Jerusalem for punishment. And as a good Jewish Pharisee, like I said, he knew scripture, he knew the Torah, where it says anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. I believe he actually saw Jesus hanging on the cross. I believe with all of his heart at that point, he believed Jesus can't be the Messiah, he can't be the Savior, he is cursed. But what has happened now? He has now come to understand that Jesus became that curse willingly 
to redeem us from the curse that we are under because we cannot always do all that is written in the Torah. And he talked about that in Galatians 3. Seventh and finally, he says, and blameless according to the law, according to the Torah, righteous. I had righteousness. Now, I began to wonder about that, and then um, I did a little concordance search. Psalm 18, David, five times, declares he is blameless. And I think Paul was using David's standard of blameless, which is to be a friend with God and to have a heart after God and to repent when corrected by a prophet. But now, now, uh, as he said uh, to the brothers in Philippi earlier, this is the second time I'm referencing this, God is working out in them to make them blameless if they remain faithful to God. And all of these very strong statements that he's making support the reason Paul wrote this letter, which is back in chapter 1, verse 25, for their progress and joy in the faith. He also wrote to believers in Corinth, righteousness is not by the law, not by the observation of what's in the Torah, but believers in Christ can become the righteousness of God in Christ. Again, if there's a secondary theme here and goes all throughout the New Testament, we must be in Christ by grace, by faith. Okay, but when Paul was in the flesh, when he was these seven things, he proudly thought that by his own efforts, he could be right with God. So as we near the end, here is an application for us. All these truths apply to us. We too must never put our trust in any kind of a birthright, any privilege we may have by birth at all, or any religious practices. Oh, I go to church every Sunday. That's not enough. Or even our zealous deeds done for God in accordance with his word. That's all by grace. That's all by the Holy Spirit working in us. That's all by what Jesus Christ has done for us. But following the flesh, anything we do in our own efforts will never make us righteous. Bottom line, may we all be living by this truth. Joy comes from the leading of the Holy Spirit so we may serve God and continually boast in Jesus Christ, the Savior King. True service of God is in the Holy Spirit. That's why I've chosen Holy Spirit songs for us today. And we'll be singing our closing song about the Holy Spirit soon. But all these words I've said can be summed up this way. Rejoicing in the Lord is the fruit of those who are serving by the Spirit of God and boasting in Christ Jesus and who have no confidence whatsoever in the flesh. 
in our human efforts and human practices because following the flesh does not bring righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.